It's Memorial Day, so all over the United States, people will be preaching Memorial Day messages. I have absolutely no such inclination. So if it surprises you that we have an unorthodox method, get to know us. It will stop surprising you. <laughs> Memorial Day is generally when you honor those who have fallen during wartime. And uh, we honor their lives. We honor the sacrifice that men and women have made around the globe to advance the cause of freedom. Veterans Day, you usually honor those who are serving in the armed forces. Today, we honor Christ. Is that fair? Can we honor Jesus today? Our message today is called The Marks of Christ. The Marks of Christ. So we're going to start in the beginning. We'll be in Genesis 1, starting in the first verse. Some of the scriptures will appear on the screen and some will not appear on the screen. We're going to do our best to help you any way that we can. Genesis 1.1 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning, the very first day. It has always struck me as completely unique that out of all of the religious claims in the world of its time, this was written somewhere between 1500 and 1300 B.C., 1300 to 1015, or 1500 B.C., years before Christ. This was the first of all time to make this proclamation. There is one God above every other God. He created everything that you see. There is nothing created that you can see that he did not make. Our God, the God of the Bible, is supreme. This is a unique claim. All who have come afterwards are simply trying to co-opt his glory. They're trying to ride upon the coattails and significance of this claim. Someone can come along in the 6th century A.D. and claim to be talking about this God, but if the story is different than the original story, then it is a lie. This morning we're going to talk about our responsibility to the God above every other. On the very first day, if we can acknowledge that God created the heavens and the earth, if we can begin to let that grow in our heart, He did something else. He separated darkness from light. Oh my goodness, friends. This is commentary on what he planned to do for the rest of eternity. He would hover over terrible situations. He would hover over lives just like mine and just like yours. That were what the Hebrews call tohu vavohu. Broken, wanton, waste, formless, void. Anybody in here ever been purposeless? Or were you all born knowing exactly why God put you on the earth? As a pastor, I deal with this more than any other thing. Pastor, my marriage is not going well. Well, why did you get married? What is it you want to accomplish? Well, you know, we just loved each other. Pastor, my business is not going well. Well, what is your family on the earth to accomplish? What are you hoping it will fund? You know, I don't know. We just hope to make some money. People do not have a purpose. Our lives are tohu vavohu, formless, void, wanton, waste. The Germans adopted this right into their language. It comes from Hebrew Yiddish to them. And when a room is destroyed, like your kids have run through the room and torn up everything you cleaned up, they say it's tohu. 
It's all tore up from the floor up, Curtis. <laughs> this was exactly what our lives were like, but the Spirit of God hovers over them. And he's looking for the opportunity to speak life into that, to speak his word into that. Friends, one of the first and most undeniable proofs that a life is responding to the God of creation is when you begin to distinguish in your own life the difference between light and darkness. Before God's spirit begins to penetrate your heart, to move away the fog, everything is shades of gray. Everything is, well, to some people that may be right or wrong, but, you know, to each their own. As soon as you recognize that there is one God above all others, one standard above all others, you begin to feel a responsibility to him. You begin to know that if this is true, there is one God above all others, he might care very much how I do or don't respond to him, and you begin to learn to distinguish light from darkness. Some of it is innate. Some of it's in our heart. People pretty much know you're not supposed to kick a baby in the face. But in our time, it might be okay to murder one while he's still in the womb. The world is dark, friends. Very, very dark. And the light of God's word is piercing it. Turn with me to Psalm 19. When you're in Psalm 19, say there. If you see it on the screen, you can say there. I'm hoping to get everybody to speak this morning. Even you Caucasians, you white folks, you can speak in church. It's okay. Nobody's ever been hurt for participating in a service. Psalm 19, the first verse says this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Listen to these words, declare, proclaim. This is like preaching, friends, declaring, proclaiming. And what do they declare and what do they proclaim? His glory and his work. Have you ever asked the question, what about those on a desert island? We serve the God who made the desert island. Please don't think that we're going to trick him with our logic. Day and night, continuously, his creation pours forth knowledge about his work and his glory. It says that there is no language where it's not understood. In other words, it's universal. Even the Cajun French, where I'm from, will understand it. Even those from Georgia will understand it. And our few Razorbacks over here to my right. Everyone understands it. It's universally understandable. And it goes out to the whole earth. And for how long? Well, until the world to come. The creation itself is testifying about the creator every day and every night. Every time you see the sun overtake darkness. Every time you see that lonely witness in the sky, the moon, reflecting the God, God's glory, the sun's glory in the darkness of the expanse. We are seeing a witness, a witness of something in our heart that is crying out. We like to hide behind our intellectualism. Hide behind lyrics to songs and philosophers that went before us. The Bible says they are fools. 
to deny that there is one creator above all other and to begin to acknowledge our responsibility to him is the absolute beginning of wisdom. Ecclesiastes says it this way in the third chapter and tenth verse. I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. There is no human being on the planet that God did not pre-wire, predispose, put an inclination in you to yearn for the eternal. I have been on five continents and last year was in over 20 countries and everywhere, friends, they worship something. I've been where they worship snakes. I've been where they worship strange hermaphrodite looking gods. I've been in places where they literally worship elephants and follow them around. Cows in the street. I'm going to admit I'm rather fond of the cow thing. I like to kill them and eat them. A good T-bone, Cody. It's worth something, huh? At this moment, I just had a flashback to your 18th birthday. I'm not going to say anything other than porterhouse. I want you to understand something. The living God has a witness that goes out into the whole world. And he placed in every person that he breathed life into a desire to respond. All of the questions about is God fair and how could he be fair. He designed you to receive him. He made the creation in the environment that you live in to witness to you about him. You would never be walking on a beach and find a watch that washed ashore and say, obviously it swirled together in the ocean and the parts just somehow came out of the soup. You would turn it over and look on the back to see who made it and if it was worth keeping. The living God made you in a way that has a stamp with his signature on it. You are unique in all of the creation and he loves you. He has set his affection upon you. Acts 14 says something interesting. Let us go there. It'll be Acts 14, 14. Now, those of you that are not accustomed to people who get excited when they preach, you need to know I may jump off the stage. I might scream. Uh, might cry. I don't know. Our whole desire is that we could convey something that God has poured into our hearts, that we might actually see the biblical world become our world. I am absolutely fool enough to believe that if God said that he heals, that he heals today. And I don't care what anybody else says about it. Raise your hand in this church if you've been healed in this ministry in this church. Look around you, friends. Are they all liars? Probably not. Apparently, God still heals. Now, he's not my genie. I work for him. He does not work for me. It is our job to pray to believe that the kingdom is at hand and to strain for it, to love him, to serve him, to persevere. His spirit will do the rest. Are you in Acts 14? Here's the 14th verse. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you, to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. 
In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven. In crops in their seasons, he provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Friends, these men had believed that the gospel that Jesus taught was true. And they stretched out to pray for a man who was crippled in his feet. And when they prayed for him, he got healed. And the people around him so misunderstood, they thought these men were divine. My, how things have changed. When we see healings, we walk away and call the man a charlatan. When we see healings, we walk away and give excuses as to why we didn't pray. When we see healings, we're sure that it happens somewhere for real, but probably not here, you know. I'm here to tell you the Spirit of God is as real today as he was in 2,000 years ago, as he was 2,000 years before that. An entire nation heard the voice of God at Sinai. Those who loved the Lord heard his voice again at Jesus' baptism. And there is a day coming where the world will yet hear the great proclamation of the gospel through the sons of God. I desire to be in that number. How about you? Let's listen to what they were preaching. Turn from these worthless things to a living God. They were not preaching your best life now. They were not preaching every day is Friday. They were not patting people on the back, giving them Sundays and putting cherries on top. They told the truth. Your life outside of Christ is worthless. It's meaningless. You worship things that are hurting you. Your life is killing you. They taught these things. Do you have to be a theologian to know that's true? Look around. In fifth, on, on Interstate 10, that runs through lots of states. How many people do you see that are smiling while they're driving? How many people are happy when they're sitting in traffic? This world is broken, friends. It's tohu vavohu, and the lack of smiles on their faces shows it. The apostles showed up and they preached this. They preached turn from worthless things. The beginning of wisdom is to have an acknowledgement of the Creator. You fear Him. You love Him. You feel a responsibility to Him. And then you have to turn from the things that have been killing you. There was a time in my life where I tried so hard to turn. Push-ups when I cursed because I was going to work myself out of it. I broke up with people I was sinning with. I got into a new crowd. The problem was I was the wrong crowd. Everybody dreams of changing the world. Nobody starts with themselves. I tried. I was unable. But then the grace of God appeared to me. How many years has he tolerated us going our own way? He said in the past he tolerated this. He let all nations go their own way. How many years? Has he tolerated you doing what you wanted to do, rolling the way that you wanted to roll? At what time do we wake up and have a responsibility to him? For me, that was my 18th year. My life was already broken beyond repair. The one decent thing in it, my then girlfriend, now wife, had given up. I had given up. There was no hope anywhere. The scholarship I wanted didn't happen. The family I was in was broken, and God interjected into that mess. Happy birthday, Lauren. I just remembered it's your birthday. 
Happy birthday. She's 27 today. Good to see you out of the hospital, darling. Church, when you look around, we're a mess. Just the God's honest truth. I know there are churches out there with perfect people, but I haven't found one yet. And when I walked into it, I tainted the whole mess. God reaches down into that if you are willing. Say, well, if you only call on him when you're in trouble, it's jailhouse religion. Yes, it's jailhouse religion. It's the only kind there is. If you called on him when you weren't in trouble, then how did you get saved? And what did you get saved from and saved to? I was broken beyond cure. And he reached down into that to rescue me. And if those words of prophecy and in tongues and every other thing that happened today are true, then he's here to rescue some of you as well. Can you really say that your life is definitely going God's way? We like to say things like, I know there's a God and I love him, but he said here in the past he tolerated you going your own way. Can you really say you hit a brick wall, turned around, and are now going the right way? See, people have made this grace so greasy that it means nothing. If you eat a cracker, you're saved. If you get the sign of the cross, you're saved. If you get some slick-haired preacher to give you a USDA Christian stamp, you're saved. Just tithe and sit there and shut up. But that's not what the Bible's about. The Bible is about hitting a brick wall, turning around, and running the other way, God's way. Do you know what they called Jesus in the first century? They said he is the way. We are followers of the way. It was none of this mamby-pamby, milksop, dainty Christianity that says, you know, that's just not God's best for you. Not God's best for you is like saying suicide's not good for your health, friends. They hit a brick wall in their life. Anybody in here up against a brick wall? Oh, man. I had nowhere to turn. I didn't even know what I needed. I was so angry I couldn't think right. And he intervened in that. He will intervene in your mess too, I promise. His testimony is in your life. If you just think about it for a moment, he has shown himself to you. Stop and, stop and just meditate for a second. How many times did you let coincidence claim God's miracle? How many times should you have died and you're still here? Do you really think that that old lady pulled out in front of you for no reason? The devil comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what he does. But the living God has preserved your life till now because he cares about you. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to call upon him. He wants you to have an abundant life in his service going his way. This is what he wants. The fact that you are still here means that the devil has failed to kill you. He may have stolen from you, but he's also failed to destroy you. How hard has he tried and how have you helped him? I used to say things like, I don't know why all this is happening to me. I do now. I know why. I was fighting for the wrong team. I was claiming to love the Lord, but serving the devil every day of my life while claiming to be a good man and quoting scripture. Oh, what a hypocrite he is. Well, friends, let us think deeply about that. What is it when we profess with our mouth a love for the Savior that does not show up in our life? Is that not lukewarm? God himself calls that vomitous. 
He purges it from his kingdom. I'm not here to make you feel bad about yourself this morning. I'm here to tell you that the living God can change your situation, but you need to know what your situation is. You ever ask somebody what their prayer request was, and they're like, it's unspoken. I'm here to tell you God doesn't understand unspoken prayer requests. He declares a thing. He says it before it happens so that when it does happen, you'll know he's God and there is no other. He needs you to acknowledge with your mouth what you need. Religion is not a private inward matter any more than the sun coming up every day is a private inward matter. He wants the whole world to know about his greatness. So much so that he'll take broken down losers like me and he'll change them into something for his glory. For 20 years I've had a chance to walk with the Lord now. And every year has been better than the one before it. And I didn't deserve the first one. Oh, Jesus. How has he testified in your life? Get healed in a parking lot? Get bailed out of a jail? Get rescued from a terrible home life? Did you need to know the truth, wanted to know the truth, and somebody showed up? And you're like, how'd this happen? Acts 17 teaches us something. He's ordained the times and places you would live and work so that you would reach out and find him, though he's never been far from you. He's manipulating the events of your life. You think you came here today because somebody invited you. Well, they may have invited you for you to know about it, but it was God's will that you come. He wants to reach out and touch you. Say, so, well, I know him just fine, Pastor. I don't know what you're talking about. Friends, I don't know anybody that's known him like he needs to be known. You know, I fell in love with my wife at 15 years old. She's a pretty thing. And I was captivated. I wanted her to wear my letter jacket. As soon as I got one of those class rings, I put it on her. I wanted everybody to know this one's taken. And every year that's gone by, I'm still finding out things about her. She's still a little bit of a mystery to me. Those of you that aren't understanding this is because you're not married. If you're married, you know right we're tracking with each other. And every once in a while, I'm still just a little surprised by something that happens. If that is how our other half is, what do you think the God who made us is like? He's a mystery that cannot be searched out. You spend a lifetime doing it, and you feel better and are richer for doing it, spiritually speaking. He's worth exploring. How do we think we can sum him up in 14 points of doctrine or a bumper sticker on the car or a preformed three-second prayer at an altar? At best, these things are a beginning. They're meant to aid you and serve you. I'm talking about a relentless pursuit of the divine. Turn with me to Hebrews 1. Be in the first verse. It's on the screen. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and many times... And in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Whom he appointed heir of all things. And through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory. And the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The God we serve wants so badly to get a message to you that he put on flesh and became a human being to do it. 
He's spoken many times in various ways. He dried up a Red Sea one time so his people could cross. He rained down ten plagues upon Egypt so that he could speak a message about being superior to the gods of Egypt. But in the last times, he showed up in the presence of his son. And he did this because he wanted to be knowable to you. Look at John 1, 14. It says exactly what I'm saying. The word of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Men in the first century who interacted with Jesus every day wrote these epistles within 30 or 40 years of Jesus' life. They wrote about all that he did while the people he did it with were still living. If it had been wrong, there would be such unanimous testimony in history that it's wrong. Yet, despite all of the secularist best attempts, no area of scripture has ever been proven to be false. If the Bible says there was a city there, when we dig, we find a city there. If the Bible says it happened, friends, it happened. And why did God do this? John 1.18 says no one has ever seen the Father or seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. He showed up in the flesh because he wanted you to understand him. He wanted you to know him. He didn't want to know you from afar. He didn't want you to know him from afar, to look at a statue and say that must be what God is like. Friends, if the Bible is the anointed word of God, Jesus was like the 3D motion picture. He wanted you to be able to interact with him. God spanned the distance from the highest heavens to the personal hell that many of us have lived in by way of his son because he wanted us to be in contact with him. I can give you testimony after testimony of men who were in prison in other countries and the living God showed up in their cell and gave them a revelation of who he is. I won't give you their testimonies today, but I can tell you an angry 18-year-old young man shook his fist in the air, upset with God. And for the first time in my life, he spoke to me in an undeniable way. He knocked me down by the power of his voice. And I have questioned many things but I have never questioned the day he spoke to me. He wants to reach you. There's not one of you. Society may have forgotten about you. Psalm 27 says your mama and your daddy could forget about you. But he will not forget about you. He loves you. He's been orchestrating the events of your life to cause you to cry out to him. This is what he wants. He wants you to cry out to him. He wants you to need him. This is not nearly all the story that God becomes knowable in Jesus. Because knowing what God is like and seeing who Jesus is doesn't do a thing for guilt or sin. For the darkness that has followed our lives, it doesn't go away because you know there's God. The book of James says even the demons know there is one God and tremble at his name. By the way, if you're a polytheist then, if you believe in many gods, even the demons are smarter than you. For that darkness followed our lives. So God sent his word in the form of his son to do what he was doing in Genesis 1-1. To separate light 
from darkness. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see what it looks like to walk in the light. Anything that is not like Jesus is spiritual darkness. This idea has crept into the church that we can love Jesus and live how we want to and it's okay. No, anything that is not like Jesus is darkness. And we cannot live in darkness and be children of the light. Romans 5 verse 6 says this, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the what? So if you were born righteous, he didn't die for you. If you're just a little bit better than everybody else and you can't for a moment look inside your life and see that you're a monstrous sinner when left to your own devices, then Jesus didn't die for you. But for the rest of us that were born a wreck and that did our very best to cover it up, tell people everything was great and we were fine, when the truth is we were hellions inside. For the rest of us, Jesus came to reach us. Come on now, is that me? Is that you? He came to set sinners free. He came to take those who were oppressed and liberate them. The good news, if, if you're sitting in this service and some area of your life is still broken, and friends, whose is not? He came to fix that. You know, the one people that he was angry with, the one people that he had harsh words with, we're never supposed to do that in church. I don't know where we get these strange ideas, these limp-wristed preachers. I'm just being honest. Cowards hiding behind their pulpits and clerical collars. We are supposed to call out sin because it kills when you don't. How many of you would relish the idea of having a snake somewhere in the room? There's a rattlesnake somewhere in the room. Would you like that? Wouldn't you wonder where it was? And when you found it, wouldn't you want some? Wouldn't if, let's just suppose that Aaron found it. Wouldn't you want him to tell you where it is so you could stay away from it? How many of you go to a doctor so he can tell you you're healthy? You go to the doctor so he can tell you if something's wrong, but we go to church to have our egos padded. Let's be honest, church. We need help with self-examination. And when we can come to the place that says, you know, what I said to my wife was ungodly. When we can come to the place where we can say, I proclaim Jesus well, but maybe my testimony is not as good indeed as it is in my creed. This is who Jesus came to die for. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still, say that word. Yeah. Say it louder. Yeah. Come on, louder. Yeah. Why is the church so scared to admit fault? We think the parables are for someone else. We think that the gospel is really for someone else because we're neat and tidy. I'm here to tell you it's not true. It's not true. It never has been true. The living God interjects into your darkness and he begins to separate out light so that you learn to walk in the light and it is a lifetime process. It's called sanctification. It's how he sets you apart for himself. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. He did not wait for you to get your life right before he offered his life for yours. But we wait to get our lives right before we offer to give it back. Okay, we're not going to call that stupid. Foolish. Idiotic. Asinine. Donkeyish. Boorish. Moorish. Stubborn. Dumb. Anybody got a thesaurus in here? Is there a better word? Oh, I heard it over there. Ignorant. Friends, if you think that you can stand outside of Christ and say, one day my life will be good and then I'll offer it to him, we have been deceived. You come to him broken in your sinful state, full of all of your problems, and you're fully aware that you can't fix them, and you say, I, I, um, I need your help. And when you feel powerless, see, power is a bit of an illusion. Uh, they say that the United States is the most powerful nation on the planet. That might be up for debate these days, but let's just suppose. And whichever president you ever esteemed most, whether it's Rinaldus Magnus or Jimmy Carter, I mean, that's the two ends of the spectrum, isn't it? No matter who it is, if you think they were the most powerful person on the planet, what happens to them when they get sick? And all of their power, can they fix it? What happens when their loved ones die? In all their power, have they been able to raise one from the dead? Despite all of man's medical advances, 100% of us die. You talk about weak. It's only in recent times you can change the color of the hair on your head, and ladies, that's not for long. We call them permanents, and we do it again and again. It's one of those mysteries. When you get married, you'll figure it out. Nobody really means permanent when they say permanent. Powerless. The admission that you're powerless gives you a chance to lean on God's power. The admission that you do not have the strength to stop doing the things you've been doing and ask Him to reach into your life and give you strength. That is the mystery of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What a story, Sequoia, to go from a sinner to something that it's not just called right, not just called square or plumb or true, but be called the righteousness of who? God. The gospel bridges the gap from the man who is powerless and is a sinner and calls him, declares him, not just right, but the same kind of right that God himself is. Tell me that that is not mercy. What we deserve is judgment. If you were a judge judging your own life, you would have to convict yourself if you were honest. It's funny, you ever been to traffic court? I mean, I've heard about it. I actually started a long career attending traffic court. At 15, my license was first suspended. <clears throat> it has been a struggle ever since. Every person that I have seen, every single one in traffic court is innocent. And since they know that they're not going to win, in Louisiana anyway, they had, they had an alternative plea. The plea was called guilty with an explanation. <laughs> guilty with an explanation meant... I did it, but 
See, what had happened was <laughs> there were these extenuating circumstances, and isn't that a blessing? You're hoping for leniency from the judge. The gospel is not guilty with explanation. It's guilty, and I know it. It's I know that I'm guilty, and I desperately need your help. I'm going to appeal to your mercy since I cannot appeal to my own righteousness. Maybe that's why God so disdains the self-righteous. It's the ultimate rejection of who he is. It's the ultimate statement that says, I don't need you. I'm doing just fine by myself. One author said this, the master of the universe would become its victim. Powerless before a squad of soldiers in a garden, God made himself weak for one purpose, to let human beings choose freely for themselves what to do with him. Isn't that a great question? What are we doing with him? Are we doing just fine on our own without him? I don't need him. I mean, he occupies a little corner on the shelf. He's a part of my life. Do you realize that when we say religious life, church life, as if there's a church life and some other kind, what a hypocritical statement that is? There's only one kind of life, friend. It's the one that God breathed into you. Every breath you testify to the fact that he gave you life. There's no such thing as spiritual life and regular life. There is only life. These these choices of words are all pointing to something subtle in us. We would like to compartmentalize so that we can be one way here and another way here. And the living God will not be fooled by our terminology. He is holy and he wants a holy people. And he knows you can't get there by yourself. So he gives his Holy Spirit. What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? He will give you a new heart and move in you to keep God's decrees, to be able to act according to God's purposes. As I began praying this morning, I had seven or eight brothers surrounding me before six o'clock in here. And I began, we all began to repent. I hope that doesn't shock you. I repented more than they did. You know why? I've sinned a lot more than most people. But he who's sinned much and been forgiven much loves much. It occurred to me that many people in here may be like Samson. Samson was born for the destruction of the enemy. God literally raised him up. His mother had a special pregnancy. It was supernatural. He had a special diet and so did his mama. He was raised in the ways of the Lord. He was born to contend with the enemy. But Samson was seduced by the world. He knew he had a calling. He knew he had a purpose. He knew he was different. But he was also in love with a little Philistine whore. She lied to him, but he didn't wake up. She lied to him again, and he didn't wake up. And you know what? She was no worse person than he was. They were both equally deceived. They were both using their talents and strengths and God-given abilities to further wickedness. 
It's funny how people have made Delilah the enemy. That's as backwards as arresting prostitutes and letting the Johns go free. How absurd. How about you arrest the guy? We have such a double standard in our society. It's wrong to slap a child who's five, but it's not wrong to kill a child who's six months in the womb. It's wrong for a woman to prostitute herself, but a guy who visits the prostitute, just let him go. How backwards and sinful. Samson, that way we can get off Houston politics for a while. Samson, you should write letters over that. We'll forget about that. Samson was born for what? To destroy the enemies of God. But we pick up in the 16th chapter of Judges, and Samson has had his eyes put out because he was asleep in the prostitute's lap. Did you know that we're supposed to be the bride of Christ? Did you know that? I'm going to give you a word that's prophetic. If you don't know what that is, then just pretend that I was just giving you my thoughts that I believe were right. Is that fair? If you are not the bride of Christ, if you're an organization that is supposed to house the bride of Christ and instead you've sold out for some religious thing, that is not a bride, that is a prostitute. She's a counterfeit to the bride. There are many Christians who, like Samson, are asleep in a prostitute's lap. Oh, it looks like a bride. It's built like a bride. It has all the same functions as a bride. But it's not wholly sold out for the living God. It's really about self and gain and secondary gain. This is our religious system today, friends. When they care more about the dollars you put in a plate than they care about the lives that are sitting in those seats, that is a prostitute. As I began to pray this morning, I felt as if there were people who had their heads in the laps of a harlot. And they had no idea what it was costing them. And then Judges 16 verse 20 came to me. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He'd been saying all of the right things so long that he did not even realize the presence of God was not with him anymore. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding. Come on, say that word, grinding. They set him to grinding in prison. Oh, man. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Let me explain this to you. Many of you may get it already, but you've got to humor me, because what else am I going to do? I'm already here talking about it. I might as well finish, right? Put to sleep by a false religion. Head asleep in its lap. Eyes torn out so that you no longer even recognize what is and is not God anymore. If somebody says it's God and they're holding the Bible, then it must be God. Then you realize the enemy has overrun your life. How do you realize it? Because you're living, even though you say Jesus is Lord, in a bit of a prison. Your life is a grind, day in and day out. Monotonous. You feel like a slave. You're never really getting free from the things that have hurt you. You're just saying the right things and never breaking free. But here comes the next verse. 
but the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Some people have shaved off their callings, wasting them in the lap of the harlot. But the living God says, if you're willing, even though it's been shaved, I will make your calling grow again. You know, Samson had no eyes, but for the first time in his life, he could see. He recognized his opportunity to perform his life's calling, and he finished well. How will you finish, friends? Is that a fair question? How is your life going to end? If you put a sign beside your bed that says, tomorrow I will get it right. Tomorrow I will do this. Tomorrow I will do that. Every day you wake up, it will still say tomorrow. Let me ask you, how long have you been putting it off already? How many years has God allowed you to go your own way? In my life, I say no more. I'm not doing it. I'm done. We need to know something. These wasted years that many of us have, they're not really wasted. God only allows those to walk with him who are able to walk with a limp. It's time for a serious reckoning with our lives and God. Turn with me to Hosea 12. In Hosea 12, starting in the second verse. The Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. That doesn't sound like very good news, does it? There is a charge that is outstanding above the heads of the unredeemed. God will repay them according to their ways. You say, but that's Old Testament. Read your New Testament. It's all over it. Everything we've done, whether good or bad, we give an account for. We give an account before the living God. In the womb, he grasped his brother's heel, and as a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He found him at Bethel and talked with him there. From birth, Jacob was steeped in sin and selfishness. His life was a continual wrestling with the will of God, but at least he was considering it. Do you know what the word Bethel means? It means the house of God. He was at the house of God and he had a real conversation with God, a real interaction with God where he said, show me your face. This is a very Hebrew way to say, I want to understand you in your fullness. It's as if God laughed. No man had seen the face of God and lived. So instead, he told Jacob who he was in his fullness. He said, you'll no longer be called Jacob. You'll be called Israel. I'm going to make you a prince with me. God answered the question. Without really answering the question, he does that. Show me your face. Show me who you are in totality. And he says, here's how I'll do it, Jacob. I take deceivers and tricksters, and I make them princes with God. Would you like to rule with me? Of course, Genesis says he also touched his hip in the socket. In Genesis 32, verses 30 through 32, you see that interaction so Jacob called the place Peniel, that means face of God, saying, it was because I saw God's face to face, and yet my life was spared. 
The sun rose above him as he passed Benil, and he was limping because of his hip. To this very day, the Jews do not eat that place on a lamb. And they don't because the patriarch Jacob, when he wanted to understand God, first had to understand God takes deceivers, tricksters, sinners, and hooligans, and he makes them rulers with him. But they walk forever different. They're no longer so strong that they walk in their own strength. They've recognized that they're powerless. Oh, friends, Jacob didn't have a motorcycle to jump on. I don't know. How many of you have ridden a camel? Not easy to get up on one. It's not. With a hurt hip, I can't imagine. But for the rest of his life, I bet he woke up every day and remembered what wrestling with God felt like. And he decided not to go his own way anymore. Any of you have a limp from your wrestling matches with God? You have a broken relationship you would like to fix? A child who maybe doesn't call you mama, doesn't call you daddy? Anybody in here have Jacob's limp? Because God will take us and make us rulers if we will simply give our whole life to him. As I began to think about this, I don't think it's fair to tell you about what God will do without telling you what he requires of you. Would y'all like to know that? You know, in a contract, when people negotiate these things, they say, what the bold print giveth, the fine print taketh away. This is when they come on TV and they say, this car can be purchased for $9,999, MSRP. And so much flashed at the bottom of the screen that you couldn't read in time that if you took a picture of the screen and got out a magnifying glass, what you would find out is the $9,999 is after you put $20,000 down. The Bible is not like that. He never tricks you. He never says, oh, here is the best. Would you like the rest? It's for $19.99. TV preachers might do that, but God doesn't do it. You know, that reminds me of a joke a pastor told me the other day. He said that a snake and a rabbit ran into each other in the woods. There's a real problem with the snake and the rabbit. They're both born blind. Yeah? Y'all can say, aw, a blind bunny, aw. Nobody feels sorry for the snake, I understand. So they, they talked for a minute and said, look, I don't know what I am. You know, I was born blind, I can't see. And he said, well, I was born blind, I can't see you to tell you. I know what we'll do. Why don't you rub up against me and tell me what you feel? And I'll do the same thing. Maybe we'll figure it out. Am I getting this right, Aaron? Yeah. So what happens then is the snake rubs up against the bunny and he says, you know, I feel these long ears. And as he moved towards the back, he said, you got big feet. And there's a poofy little tail, right? I'm going to take a wild guess. I think you're a bunny. The rabbit began to hop around so excited he finally knows what he is. Snake said, okay, it's my turn, it's my turn. So Bunny rubs up against him and says, man, you got a flat head and sharp teeth. You got beady little eyes and you seem to be covered in diamonds. The snake said, I'm a TV preacher, I'm a TV preacher. <laughs> turn with me to Mark 14. I guess our TV ministry will never get off the ground, huh? That's a good thing because I was never planning on having one. 
If you're going to be forgiven by God, friends, you're going to walk away with a discernible limp. It's going to happen. It's an awareness of your weakness. He demands that you understand mercy so that you know how to give it to other human beings. He demands that. He will accept nothing less than that. In Mark 14, we find out that it requires you to be an alabaster jar. Listen to this. While he was, Mark 14, 3. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. Isn't it interesting where Jesus hung out? Where was he hanging out? In the home of a man named Simon the leper. Now, let me tell you just a little bit about leprosy. Because you'll go your whole life and never have seen one. Body parts rot off. Skin falls to the ground. It is considered such an abhorrent thing in the United States that we formed leper colonies. Right? Let's put all of those people somewhere where none of us have to see them. Boy, that's sick, isn't it? What about them? Carville, Louisiana is a leper colony. So that most people growing up in Louisiana will never see a leper. Because if you're a leper, they put you at Carville, Louisiana. You almost have to leave this country to meet somebody with leprosy. That's how much the world disdains being around lepers. And whose house was Jesus in? Friends, I don't care where you've come from. I don't know how much you rely on that crutch that says nobody gets me. You just don't know what I've been through. If you knew, you wouldn't be. I can tell you that Jesus ate with lepers when no one else would. What on earth makes you think he won't meet with you? While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. Come on, say expensive. She did not bring him that stuff you put quarters in a truck stop and get out of a vending machine. Very expensive perfume. I haven't bought perfume in so long. I don't. What's expensive today? Come on, ladies. Don't act like you don't know. Somebody talk to the pastor. No, I mean, what's a kind? Chanel number five. Five's a number of grace. That works. She brought him some Chanel number five. Now, the problem with this kind of Chanel number five is it's mixed with pure nard. And when you mix pure nard with Chanel number five, you put it in an alabaster jar. And you seal it. Today, what do we have on the top of our, our perfume bottles? We got a little pump dispenser, don't we? Or some of you can remove a, a little skinny top and you put it on your wrist and, you know, whatever it is you do. You know how she had to get the Chanel number no. five out of the jar? Had to be broken. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. I want to tell you that the gospel will require you to take whatever you have that's precious, whatever it is, and offer it as a sacrifice. You lay it at the feet of Jesus. You be broken before him because it is something beautiful that you're adoring him with. The religious people around Jesus said what they always say, oh, this money could have been given to the poor. John tells us they didn't care anything for the poor. They wanted to steal the money themselves. The gospel will not require of you nothing. It's free in that Jesus did it while you were still a sinner. It costs you everything to be a believer, friends. Your life is not yours anymore. 
You don't get to decide what you're going to smoke anymore. You don't get to decide how you're going to spend your money anymore. You don't get to decide how much you're going to drink anymore. You don't get to decide how you're going to talk to your neighbor anymore. You become a servant of the gospel. And whatever the Bible says you have, you have. Whatever the Bible says you do, you do. Any other kind of Christianity, friend, is not Christianity at all. Don't you think Jesus is worth total obedience? Anybody stand up and say, I'm just dying to give him a mediocre life? Anybody in here want the mediocre life? She brought him the very best, and it could only be seen when it was broken. Why do we look for Christians that have it all together? We look for Ken and Barbie on a stage, real estate agents turned pastor and their wives. And why? Because they've got it so together, if I hang around them, maybe I will have it together. Like yuppies. It's sickening. You should look for a person who is so broken that you can see Jesus in their life. Jesus hung around with broken people. Otherwise, you get confused with the man's glory and God's glory. And what a dangerous thing it is to steal glory from God. His servants have an attitude unmatched by anything that the world has ever seen. It's clearly displayed in Colossians 1. Hear it here. Colossians 1, 24. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. Oh, church. You know, this is that kind of language that you tend to skip over. Can you imagine a man so filled with love and obligation for the Lord that he said, Nolan, if I get a chance to get a beating for doing something that would benefit you, I'm going to consider that participating in the sufferings of Christ. I'm going to be just as happy as if I actually got the chance to be crucified with Jesus. See, the love of God did not stop at the cross. This is a great misunderstanding. Oh, everything that ever needed to be done was done at the cross. Really? Because there were no Christians that day. How did the gospel get everywhere that it went? Men participated in the fellowship of the sufferings of the cross by carrying it to places others had never gone. And they suffered greatly to do it. Name me an apostle that they didn't try to martyr. Well, John lived to be an old man. They tried to kill him more than once. They saw it as a joy. Their lives didn't belong to them anymore. The mark of a Christian is the light and the darkness have separated and you are living for the light. No matter what darkness does to you. This causes men with contracts on their lives to smile and go witness to the people who promised to kill them. It's been done so many times in the last 2,000 years that it's become cliche. Paul said something in Galatians 6, and we're drawing near to a close, but I want you to hear it. Take a minute and turn there. It's going to be on the screen. No, it's on the screen. Finally, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Let's think about the man who said this for a minute. Five times he received 39 lashes. He'd been shipwrecked 
spent a day and a night in the open sea. He was in constant danger from false brothers, in constant danger from robbers. He was beaten frequently. He was stoned one time, stoned with rocks to the point where the brothers thought he was dead. I bear on my body the marks of Christ. How did this lion get these marks? Because he took on every challenger to protect his pride. Not his pride is in an emotional feeling. His pride is in the family. Jesus Christ confronts everything that would harm you. And he bore on his body the very marks and scars from that confrontation. Friends, if you don't have an attitude that says, I'm willing to suffer for Jesus, then you can't follow Jesus. This idea that says he'll give you heaven in the next life and help in this life and come get your best life now, it's a lie. You know who he'll spend eternity with? Those who stood by him in his trials. This is the best metaphor for a Christian you could possibly find. Still living, but battle scars everywhere. The world had not been able to kill him. Matthew 16 says it this way. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. I tell you that he has left your sins unpunished until now. He let you go your own way until now. He brought you with kid gloves to this moment for a reason. He didn't want to hurt you. He wanted to help you. He didn't want to condemn you. He wanted to save you. He took on every challenger. And they left marks on his body so that he could look at you and say, I will give you my righteousness. But I require of you to follow in my footsteps. We cannot go our own way and claim to belong to him. We simply can't. Y'all stand to your feet.